Welcome to Art Worlds with me, Dr. Cleo Roberts Comoretti. This is the podcast that tells you all about the art worlds you might have missed. We're going to journey around the globe and talk to artists, patrons and curators from Cambodia to the Democratic Republic of Congo. With this, we'll build a truly international perspective of the many thriving art worlds. Trinidad and Tobago. The southernmost island country in the Caribbean lies close to South America and the coastline of Venezuela and Guyana. The two islands, with their soaring mountains, steep waterfalls and lush coral reefs, offered visions of paradise to Western explorers. But the hypnotic beauty of the place became the setting for a protracted tragedy. Trinidad in particular has a history of slavery enforced by Spanish and British colonisers as well as French settlers. This oppressive legacy influenced the island's art, giving rise in 1929 to the Society of Trinidad Independence, a pioneering group of poets, painters and writers who increasingly sought intellectual autonomy. Their far-reaching ideas paved the way for subsequent generations of artists, whose own creativity was bolstered by political independence from Britain in 1962. And today, Port of Spain, the lively capital of Trinidad and Tobago, has cemented itself as the centre of the island state's artistic activity. Christopher Cozier is one of Trinidad and Tobago's leading artists. His practice is grounded in the island's post-independence conditions. They provide an entry point to exposing wider cultural shifts, historical erasures and international economic policies that have affected the broader Caribbean region. Aside from his rigorous artwork, which has been shown recently at Liverpool Biennale and Sharjah Biennale, Christophe also writes, teaches and co-founded Alice Yard, an experimental project space in the country's capital, Port of Spain, that is a focal point for many artists. From his studio, he spoke about his interest in affecting new readings of the region, including understanding the island's oil wealth and its changing communities. You're in your studio in Trinidad and Tobago. You're quite the artistic legend of the islands. Thinking back through the creative histories of the region, there was a time when the Caribbean artist movement, established in the mid-1960s, focused on creating and defining an aesthetic unity across the islands. How do you relate to the term Caribbean art or Caribbean artist? That's, uh, I mean, that shifts so often according to who's looking and, um, and also according to who's trying to muster it and in what time. I mean, I think the Caribbean, the you know, CAM is very important, of course, because there was a constellation of Caribbean artists and writers in the kind of post-Winrush, post-Second World War era that were formulating. One of the interesting things about that group um, is, you know, the New Beacon, um, the New Beacon group, uh, which surrounded CAM or was part of, interfaced with CAM. The name Beacon really comes from a journal that existed sort of in the 30s, you know. So um, there are different moments. And I think in the Caribbean at large, there hasn't really been a, a kind of consensus 
as to where the conversation really begins. Of course, in the islands where there are more established critical conversations, say like in Cuba or say in the Dominican Republic or, you know, and, and so on, there's a kind, there's been more of a, a historical analysis. While I think in the Anglophone Caribbean, it still tends to focus on national narratives, national rationalizations. And um, so we kind of live in a funny space right now, where now there's a kind of a, a world of contemporary practice in which you could say nationalities are breaking down, people are becoming Caribbean as they navigate, say, London, New York, Toronto, <laughs> Paris, Amsterdam. And that, I think, harks back to the moments before independence, particularly in the Anglophone um, and, say, Dutch Caribbean, where, like in the 20s and 30s, you know, there were all of these people moving around. I mean, it's quite ironic. I I'm in a show that opens in Berlin about sort of like the Asian presence um, in the Central America and the Caribbean. And I'm showing, I'm not, I mean, I'm not Chinese, but, but somehow I ended up in this show uh, because I, uh, there's a project of mine about transient labor and things like that. But I'm showing with Sybil Attack, right? Who is uh, early, Caribbean, Anglophone Caribbean modernists who practice late 20s, 30s, and 40s. She died in the 70s. Um, very little is known about her in Trinidad, but it's obvious when you get data on her work. She was studying with Max Beckman in St. Louis. She had a, a, uh, some sort of correspondence with Philip Gustin. She founded the Trinidad modern movement around art. She had an interface with the Beacon Group, um, you know, that eventually formed with younger people in London. Um, this woman is everywhere. She moved around the islands. She had conversations. She even spent a little bit of her time in Brazil and in Peru and interfaced with the Peruvian modernists like in the late 30s, early 40s. And like nobody, nobody has done any work on that. So I, I think so what I'm really saying is that it's quite ironic that I'm in a show in Germany with one of our early modernist um, or modernists, and something like that may not happen necessarily in the Caribbean <laughs> because there isn't that kind of curatorial work or that kind of investigation going on at the rate at which it should, because people get distracted by you know, indigenous or national narratives. I hope I haven't gone too far away from your question. But, no, uh, no, it's really great, and we did. When I spoke with Nima from the bank, they have quite a lot of Sybil's work. Yeah, there was a time, I think, uh, when the, in the transition from colonial to um, local administration, um, one of the early, another figure like Sybil Atek is uh, Kalai Chang. And uh, ironically, these people are Asian, you know, they're Chinese, of Chinese descent. And um, they, were very involved in building the narrative about art in the very early nascent period. And um, Chang was collecting. He was advising the Central Bank's collection. So you find that the collection of the 60s, 70s, even on, until, until about the mid 80s is quite fastidious, it's quite 
careful. And it's some of the best um, work of that early moment you can find. After that, the collection, a kind of political interference and thing takes shape. And in fact, that's one of the challenges that Naima has. She's recently in that position to try to kind of find structure for it. Mm. You know? Because, you know. Well, no, you, you just mentioned that not enough work is being done in the Caribbean. Where is a lot of the curatorial and re activity and research happening? Um, that's a good question. Um, the, well, I think in the early days, there really wasn't much. Um, and I think we're now climbing out of a period in which kind of like a kind of indigenous art market and a certain kind of expedient adventurism was going on around formulating these things. So if, if the galleries, the, the little local art shops sold paintings, then they tried to build a narrative to rationalize what they're selling now. And, and there was a tremendous amount of complicity by artists of a certain generation and collectors to kind of reinforce that narrative because there was an assumption that it would all reinforce each other and reinforce the investment. But the thing about it is, um, then came the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, from the 80s on, you know, the, the into the 90s, the contemporary conversation, younger artists. So right now, I think one of the sad things is that there's some work being done. I'm talking about Anglophone Caribbean specifically. There's some work being done, say, like in Jamaica, a lot of work being done in different um, universities in the U.S., you know. There are different um, art historians like Krista Thompson, Erica James, um, Jerry Philogene, um, you know, and then people who come from the diaspora in England uh, now more recently are reaching out to the actual islands before they just wrote about each other in the diaspora, whether they were in Toronto or New York. But I found maybe, I don't know what happened, like maybe in the last 10 12 or 15 years that uh, say people writing in England, you know, uh, or, or Canada, actually looking to the actual islands. While I would say there was a time when they would just proceed without even looking in this direction. And, um, and that was a kind of weird tension. Um, but I think the internet, uh, travel, um, contemporary practice, as I said, has kind of slowly built this new sort of conversation. And it isn't singular, it's, it's multivaried, you know, because, um, you know, there are people operating in Rotterdam, in Utrecht, <laughs> you know, Paris, London, and then in the islands more. Unfortunately, um, to close it off, you know, the island, the, curat the curatorship and research um, hasn't kind of unshackled itself from nationalist um, drives. People actually Caribbean, I would say most people from the Caribbean become Caribbean more in the diaspora. But you definitely can't accuse your work of being regional. Your work is greatly appreciated for its universal relevance. And if we think about two videos that you made, Gas Men and Globe, mm -hmm. they were filmed on Lake Michigan. 
they feature these rather cavalier men dressed in suits, swinging fuel pumps, a la lasso brandishing cowboys. Yeah. And the soundtrack they perform to is this, this collision of sirens, sitars, and vocals. Yeah. And so while the video is very much based in, in Chicago and Lake Michigan, it's also connected with the oil wealth that flows through Trinidad and Tobago. And I want to know more about how these figures and in general extractive practices relate to your experiences of living where you live. I mean, it's it's an interesting story that, uh, yeah, I was, I mean, I have been interested in the social environment around oil because it definitely shapes my, the moment in which I grew up, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Because that, in fact, in the internal histories of Trinidad, the 70s are referred to as the oil boom. It was a few years after independence and, um, Trinidad um, experienced some a degree of wealth was unprecedented, and but we've had other booms. You know, there was a chocolate time. There was a you know, um, but that boom was unprecedented. It happened just after independence, and um, and it was a kind of weird moment. You know, because we had Miss Universe, the first black Miss Universe. You know, so we had the most beautiful woman in the world, and then we had this guy, Hazley Crawford, that was the fastest man in the world. <laughs> You know, <laughs> who won in the 76 Olympics, you know, the, the hundred meters, and uh, and there was money in the bank, you know, and um, but it had a kind of a a dark side, you know, because this, we fell into consumerism. There was some resistance to that, um, which was dealt with in by the government in secret, violent ways, and uh, so it was a kind of a, a yin and yang kind of situation, and um, and since those were pivotal to my growing up years. And it also had something to do with the fact that fortune really had a lot to do with the fact that we didn't join OPEC, you know? And um, so there are all kinds of larger dynamics than that we don't often think about. Because when people think about the Caribbean, they think about the 19th century and sugar, or they think about tourism. They don't think of entanglements. Trinidad is seven miles off the coast of Venezuela, the Gulf of Paria, which is the stretch of water between Trinidad and Venezuela, where the Orinoco Delta opens out, is one of the most oil-rich areas in the world. So both Venezuela and us. So I think over the years, I was thinking about the social conditions. And then I started thinking more as the crisis in Venezuela unfolded, that we're all in this predicament, you know? And, and I started noticing a, a, a connection between these mono economies, single, you know, single economies and global addictions, you know, I kept thinking, you know, like Colombia with cocaine, um, you know, um, and the, the link between that and violence and the breakdown of certain value systems and certain ways in which, so I, the violence in Trinidad in that moment in the 2000s, as the, as the conflicts in Venezuela unfolded, the violence in Trinidad also unfolded and there was arms trade and, you know, all kinds of things going on. And, um, and I found myself in Chicago <laughs> and I was walking on Lake Michigan and um, every day I was, I, was in a, I was in a residency at Northwestern um, University. Actually, 
um, supported by Krista Thompson's department, you know, and um, and I was trying to make sense of this whole thing. And uh, so the first idea really wasn't so much about cowboys. Um, it had to do with the kinds of um, the kung fu movies I grew up looking at. Uh, you know, the older generation looked at cowboys. And my generation, it was Wang Yu and Carter Wong and Alexander Pusheng. And of course, Bruce Lee was the one that Americans would, and people in other countries would know. And, and in the startup of these movies, you know, they would always show these guys with all kinds of weird weapons doing katas. And, and it's a kind of spectacle of masculinity and, um, and, and, and revenge. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm walking on Lake Michigan. And all of these things were like imploding in my head. It's like I was losing it or something. And I was, and then I don't even know how it started. And a few years before I'd been to Iowa and I went on a farm, a corn farm, a massive industrial corn farm. And it suddenly occurred to me, I saw the man had his own fuel pump in his house. Because of course, when you're out on these farms, you can't just go to a gas station. And it was the first time I realized it was a thing you could buy. Like he had four of them there and I kind of picked up one and I said, oh my God. And then, so I ordered fuel pumps and I was locked up in the studio, tossing them around. Sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, trying, why am I obsessed with these things? And then I just got this idea one day to um, go out on Lake Michigan with a bunch of guys and, um, and two guys in the department, they weren't, um, artists, they were just regular people working in, I think one was an administrator and the other one was a pal of his who did a little bit of theater, but he has a corporate job. So I got two guys in suits because at first I tried to work with um, theater people, but they started coming up with all kind of workshop ideas <laughs> and they started to question me, you know, like, because I'm not a theater person, like, have you thought of this and have you thought of that and this formula and this theory? And I was like, no, I just want to take two guys on the beach, which kind of harks back to the carnival improvisational street performativity that I grew up in. Strangely enough, when I gave these guys the pumps and put them on the beach, they knew exactly what to do. They started playing cowboys and Indians. They started swinging things around. And then I just... I, I, my, I brought my daughter, who is a filmmaker, and we just filmed them. We didn't have to do much directing at all. And then we just went back uh, with the raw footage. <laughs> and, but the music part was very interesting because I, I was trying to figure out, well, should I use the natural environmental song? So with the song, what was weird is I, I had to come home for a brief moment. And I approached two musicians that had done a performance. And I kind of did it Bollywood style. I mean, literally, I showed them the raw video footage. I projected it large. And one, one woman was a sitarist, and the next one was a jazz, jazz singer. And the two of them just sat there improvising, you know, doing the improvisations to the raw footage. And then I gave it to a, a, someone to mix it down. Strangely enough, in the one where the guys are swinging, they are just singing. And then what happened, because we were recording outdoors, um, a siren went by. And, and I just said, keep going, guys. I like this because, you know, it, it kind of brings the real world um, into the situation, the improvisational real world into the situation. And um, 
So the peace to me displaces people. It kind of disturbs and displaces. It, it becomes a kind of anywhere. Is this a beach in the parts of Nigeria where oil is extracted? Is it somewhere in Algeria? Is it Mexico? Is it the Caribbean? You know, is it Venezuela? And then the music. I mean, one would have, I mean, I noticed that in some instances, according to who is listening, um, people from Trinidad, because, you know, 45% of our population is from India, recognize it automatically as Indian music. But in some other locations, some people think it's Arab, you know, or West Africa or something. You know, it's, it's really weird. I mean, to me, there's only, the sitar has a particular song, right? Um, so, yeah, it's been an interesting piece in, in terms of talking about global questions, about masculinity, about corporations competing, about... And what I was now going to ask you about, um, you have an amazing strength in being able to see the interconnections in global economies. And this isn't just about capital, but also emotional economies. And I think you've thought a lot about the intimacy between communities that may be physically displaced. And one of your works is a small flight of red stairs called Home Portal. And it's traveled all across the world. Um, <laughs> yeah, you've had, we've had versions in Kingston, Bogota, Boston. You talk about a portal in the title. Where are the steps leading to? Where is this portal taking us? Well, it has, um, in terms of how the narrative began, I mean, one of the points you're making, something struck me when you were introducing and, you know, coming from there to there, was something about the Caribbean. You know, in the way people imagine the Caribbean, they imagine the Caribbean as a location, you know, as a specific location. And that has a certain expediency for local political types and for people on the outside in looking, at, looking in, um, in trying to extract what works for them in terms of how they engage the Caribbean, right? Whether it's for tourism, whether it's for extraction or whether it's for some kind of fantasy about culture, you know, um, or certain kind of cultural um, space that, um, you know, or memory, just memory in a, in a diaspora, you know, some kind of idyllic. Um, but what I think is distinctively Caribbean is a kind of a sense of spatial, its relation between the space we're in and the wider kind of global economies and relations that are going on. Because before I get into talk about the red step, you think about it. Right now, the cuisine in Trinidad, which we associate with India and Africa and Latin America, you know, but actually in the last maybe 10 years, um, street food in Trinidad has changed. We now have gyros selling on the streets of Spain, And that is because of events in Syria, right? So a drought in Syria causes lots of unemployed men to move into the cities, which then causes the violence, which led to the breakdown. And, and places like Aleppo and Homs have been on a kind of a map through kinship and clans since the 30s and 40s in the Caribbean. So suddenly we have new generations of Arab men coming here 
escaping the situation. We are on that map, and now they're selling gyros on the street. Um, you know, shawarma with pineapple and pepper sauce. I mean, that's kind of madness. You know, shawarma does not go with pineapple and pepper sauce, so, but now it does in on the streets of Port of Spain at night. So that to me is very Caribbean in the sense of the Caribbean as a site of, you know, that's linked to global questions, which is how it began, you know, when the ships came and the bodies and goods and services started moving. So in a sense, um, the Red Step is a very funny project in terms of my process coming right after the, um, the Gasman project. Um, a few years after, I was invited to work with a, a kind of social practice group in um, Boston called um, Design for Social um, Trans, you know, Transformation, DSOS. <laughs> and uh, Kenny Bailey is, is one of the protagonists of that group and, and mine. And he invited me to work in this community that was under siege. You know, it was a Black working class community of migrants. Um, with people from the Caribbean, Africa, Capo Verde, you know, Ghana, whatever. And, um, but it's also an area where, because of the, a lot of social services existed. So you had this kind of tradition of uh, local residents, diasporic, um, you know, residents, and, and then a kind of social media, a social, sorry, social services dump, you know, where um, people are coming to get methadone or, you know, things like, you know. And then on top of that, you have gentrification, you know, hipsters coming in because property value is a challenge. So he was trying to kind of find a way to bring the community together and to create dialogues and to create some kind of shift. And they invited me to, as an artist, to um, work with them because he had this, he was experimenting with, well, I'm not a social worker. I don't know anything about that, but I'm a creative. So what if you put me in this situation where I come up with something that a social worker can't think of? And, and what happened is I came up with all these great ideas and every single one of them was rejected by the community or by the organizer. It was very, very intimidating. And then one day out of desperation, walking around the community, I, I had been looking at these red back steps, which are very common in traditional housing coming from the era of shackle housing, you know, and whatever. Um, but a lot of working class homes and village homes, why they have those funny. Now, a lot of it in, in places like Barbados, the steps are what's left, you know, because in some instances, the houses move. The houses are so small, they can be put on the back of a truck and move from one estate to another, which I saw as a child visiting Barbados. And so it all will be left with the plot of land and the step, right? And um, so out of just pure desperation to try and relate. I built one out of cardboard actually, <laughs> painted it and put it in an empty lot in Boston. And the minute I put it there, people started communicating with me about, oh, those steps remind me of the village that I came from. Those steps remind me, they made connections to the stoop in Harlem, you know. And, and then I said, aha, we got something. And that project, and then I thought of this as a place like Stargate, that cheesy American sci-fi program where people were jumping through time and space by going into this portal. And the step represents in some way the place you leave but never quite return to. And you've, you've written 
quite extensively and I think you've had quite a hybrid approach to your practice so you've written you've edited like magazines and then in 2006 you co-founded Alice Yard it's a project space in Port of Spain and it hosts residencies and you call it a network so what's the role of this space well in terms of the um, I don't write as much anymore, <laughs> to confess. <laughs> but I, uh, when I say that, like, um, there was a tremendous pressure on me to write more formally, but I find myself less inclined to do that. In fact, I'm reading some stuff now, about something called the undocument, about, like, fragmentary texts and statements that instigate things rather than trying to arrive at a kind of master text. And I think that reflects very much on some aspect of my practice that I've been struggling with. Um, so yeah, um, so some of that writing and some of that curatorial work I did, because I think all artists do place themselves in or respond to a certain dialogue or conversation, even though they may not admit to it through their actual practice. So that naturally led to um, what happened with Alice Yard. Um, it has a kind of a history in, in the sense that Port of Spain has a history of, especially around the city, of people using backyards and empty lots of land for different kinds of cultural practices. Um, whether it is um, the Jose Yards, you know, which is Ashura, you know, there are these yards that are designated to build the tajas for the Ashura processions because there's a kind of Shiite tradition in Trinidad. There's these yards for carnival where bands assemble. Um, there are these yards for um, steel band, which is linked to carnival. Um, there's these yards for shango rituals. Um, there are these grounds for pagwa, which is holy. <laughs> um, you know, so... They're either family properties or just common grounds in villages or towns, you know? So in some ways, um, we tried to do a formal space years ago and we got bogged down with grant writing and, and boring stuff. And in fact, we kind of collapsed because um, we realized that it was like a Cinderella board, you know? We, we had to build this infrastructure to be part of this larger international question but the infrastructure took over. And then we had, we had money, time and energy left to actually do things that we wanted to do. And just at that time, um, a group of artists had approached me and others to do uh, a kind of contemporary show, but rather than house it in one location, they wanted to kind of take it back out into the city. And one of the young artists, a young woman called Jamie Leloy, wanted to use a backyard she wanted an old moldy backyard of some house. And my friend, Sean Leonard, um, the architect and founder of Alice Yard, um, his great-grandmother's backyard was a place where the family used, would play. And it was a place that mass bands and different kinds of cultural activities had happened informally in this 1930s um, neighborhood of the city, known for lots of little pockets of action, you know, little carib theaters a couple blocks away from us and all kinds of other little, you know, cultural spaces. 
So she came, Jamie came, she did her um, video installation in this little backyard and people came, it was a success. And then the next week, by the next week or two, people started calling, oh, um, can we use the backyard to do something else? You know, it was such a cool space. And then of course he had this problem, what do we call it? <laughs> and um, so Alicia happened to us. It's not to say that we sat in a room and said, let's start an organization called Alicia. Alice is the great grandmother of Sean, whose property it was. And then before you knew it, every other week, every month, different things started happening. And it moved from being a very local affair to people coming in from other islands wanting to use the space to do things in the diaspora. And then it started evolving. You know, Sean then put an apartment and we put a space to show work and we put a space to like a working space, all very small and modest. And, um, and it, was, it never closed. It was open 24 hours. People could walk in and out. So it was very much in the yard tradition. And, um, and then it got, it just kept getting larger and more complicated. And, but what we decided is that we, as long as it's fun and we are playing, and people want to do things, we will just um, facilitate. So it became a practice of sharing, generosity, playing. And a lot of these projects have, that started in the yard from artists from around the world, and um, with, a, with an emphasis on Caribbean and its diaspora, of course, um, became, you know, obviously I became the DNA of all kinds of things that happened in museums and all kinds of things on, in, in other parts of the world. Many thanks to Christopher for his detailed answers. You can learn more about his work and Alice Yard from the links on our Instagram page. And if you enjoyed the episode, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next time, we meet Adeline Gregoire, a curator and artist who talks about rupturing the image of the Caribbean as a place of sun, sea and sex. This has been Art Worlds with me, Dr. Clea Roberts-Conradi. See you on the next journey.